Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, Brenton Webber. Today I'm speaking with Kyle Dean Houston, a highly successful sales executive turned best-selling author of the book Patchwork Junkie from the Greater Tampa Bay area. This conversation is so interesting because Kyle's journey is fascinating. I'm not going to go into too much detail or steal any thunder, but this is quite a ride. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Kyle. Welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Kyle, I mean, we've... I'm just so happy that we're going to continue this conversation. Just to give some background before before we get into how we're even started to talk to each other and where we're going with this conversation, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so I will. You know, I'll keep it to contemporary times right now. How's that? So yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I am. I'm a Silicon Valley sales executive that has a unique background, which you and I started to talk about with the book there uh, being recorded and not knowing it, uh, which you and I are going to dive into deeply here in a little bit, but um, had some success out there with some startup companies. I've got a unique skill set of building structure out of chaos. I actually feel like I have an addiction to that Um, and turned best-selling author, decided one day I was going to confess my deepest, darkest sins. I was going to release all of this power that my past had over me, and I wrote this book. Uh, so currently, I live in Florida, in the states, and I am a coach and an author, best-selling author. Very happy about that, and I am also a speaker. Now, what I really am, over and beyond anything else, is a doting father. I've got an eight-year-old daughter and a ten-year-old daughter, and I will tell you right now, my entire identity is wrapped up in how much they love me and what kind of a dad I am. And I adore my wife, who's my soulmate, who um, that is such a trite term that gets thrown out. But I think through the course of talking about some of the stuff that I've come back and her role in it, you'll find out she did something really bad in a past life to deserve me, but I really needed her. (laughs) I'm happy I've got her. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, yeah, I, I like, I know a lot more of your story. And, and the reason and where where you are is quite. I mean, you've worked for some really big companies. I mean, your your sales pedigree is phenomenal. Well, so the the companies that I grew, um, they were both startup companies, right? So one of them was when I walked in, it was a hundred a hundred person company, but before that, it was nineteen. Like months before that, it was nineteen, and one of the biggest VC firms in the world gave them eighteen million dollars and said, "Run with it." So. They weren't really big companies, but we did amazing things. Now, the second startup we sold to a $2 billion publicly traded company. And for as long as I could stand it, I was a vice president inside that company. So, and $2 billion, I mean, look, it's, it's not Facebook, but you know, it's, it's not, Hey, either. It's pretty good. No, gosh, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. No, no, there's a, there's no humbleness to that number. Um, <laughs> impressive. Impressive. What, what do you think your secret was to get to that success? You know, VP of the company, you've significant impact in a company. What, what, what are the, what are the, the secret things that we need to be looking for in, in the unicorns and the, the ones that have, or, or is it the hard graft along the way to get there? Like, yeah, what's the most important thing in your, in your opinion? 
Uh, if I've got to pick one, I, 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 I'm just going to tell you it's, it's hunger, right? And, and inside, you know, what builds hunger becomes the philosophical question. And that is literally all the pain, the insecurity, the doubt, um, every negative emotion that a lot of people shrink from, I learned how to harness that and run with it. And that was literally the secret to my success. There's one small twist I want to put on this. A lot of people, they get the verbiage wrong. I was not the vice president of. I was a vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. And there's a vast difference between the two. Look, yes. they're both yes. monumental. And, and I mean, when you know what I came from, it's still extremely monumental. But I don't want anybody to think I was the CEO or one one notch below the CEO of this $2 billion empire. Yeah, that's true. Because where, where, where I am in the world, vice president does mean something different. Well, it does do. It depends on the way you use it. But no, no, look, I, I was in charge of, you know, millions of dollars worth of uh, business units and doing things inside that company that nobody else could do. And it's no small feat. No, um, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But there could be there could be fifty vice presidents inside right. that company, right? Right. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Hey, Understood. but I'm still a big deal, dang it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I bet. Um. <laughs> hey. Um. But but so from from that time there, um. I I guess I'm leading you down the the path of how important are customer insights to companies that are growing those those uh those foundation companies. Yeah, no, I, I I tell you what, if you if I would have known that's the direction you were going, I would have absolutely uh, made it easier on you. But I I'm going to be very that. cryptic, mate. I was being very cryptic. It's all it's it, definitely on my shoulders. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, it's no big deal. Listen, I will tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, and this is going to sound like less of BS because I didn't know what was coming. There was absolutely in startups specifically, right? And then we'll start talking about when when people get big and the customer doesn't really become part of the bottom line and a lot of it's lip service. But in startup, when you have zero brand equity and you're going into an established market and you want to either disrupt the market or at least make the products better, you better be customer centric. So it was so important that when I came off the heels of the first startup company, which was a company called Glacier Bay, and I was in the interview process. And, and look, this was a situation where I walked in and I, it was my choice. I either wanted the job or not, right? And I said, the only way I'm taking it is if, A, I've got complete control over pricing. Nobody can do anything with pricing other than me, not even the CEO. Mm -hmm. Two, I have all the say in sales. And three, I have all the say in customer service. And if they weren't willing to marry sales with customer service, then I wasn't going to do it because I knew it would fail. And there was nothing more important. This is the way I put it to everybody. It's sales job to create a mess and it's customer services job to follow behind and clean it up. Because when you're in startup and you're building the airplane while you fly it, which was, you know, my metaphor that I used all the time. Yeah. The sales guys out there making messes, not lying, not overselling a bill of goods that we can't deliver, but literally don't worry. Talk to everybody, get out there, sell, 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 sell. Don't worry about production. And then customer service comes in and cleans all that up. So nothing more important than the cleanup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, in the, in the car world, it's known that the second car is sold by the service team. That's it's right. Such a, it's the two departments that if there's going to be any breakdown of silo walls inside an organization, that should be the very first place that it starts. Those two 
parts of the process. And what crushes me about that, I love this conversation, by the way, because nobody, look, I've been on dozens of podcasts and I've never got to have this conversation. And I don't know if you can tell from my energy, but I'm on the edge of my seat because I am so passionate about the way you treat a customer. And the thing that's always crushed me. So I, I, it's always been intuitive to me. And I'll tell you why. Let me, let me back up a little bit more. I am the hardest customer to please. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm an asshole. I am. Oh, sorry, okay, I, I, yes, I'm a complete dick, which means <laughs> that I know how to handle the worst customers. Yeah. And all I do, and it's intuitive, is I treat them the way I would want somebody to treat me in that situation. So I literally have this natural propensity to step in and create this lasting relationship, you know, this 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 partnership with the worst cantankerous customers you can ever imagine. And I found out because I didn't think that was that big of a deal, that that's a rare skill, that that's, that's a lost art, if you will. And it just kills me that not more money is shoveled into that. What you think of when you think of the, um, and I hope I don't insult any of your, your listeners, but a lot of times when you think of the customer service department, you think of a bunch of interns that are like trying to get into sales, or you think a stepping stone department where it's being run by people that really don't have a whole well, lot we've, of experience. We've both had that experience, right, of yeah. being in an organization, and the customer service team is almost seen as the lowest level of employee, which is right. a ridiculous perspective ridiculous perspective. And it drives you nuts um, for lots of reasons. They have no authority to make a decision. So you're talking to the wrong person right out of the gates. Um, they have no experience to manage, you know, really tough situations, which literally those situations are make or break for your business. So it, it kills me. Um, but anyway, I think I might've saw a squirrel and kind of went down a rabbit hole, but it's no, that. No, not at all. Yeah. No, no, it's wonderful. Well, I, wanted to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time getting into your customer centricity. And I knew that I know that you're a very human centric thinker. And I, I, before, you know, I know that once we leave the current period of time in our conversation, you know, the, 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 the now and what you're the exciting things that you're doing, then we're going to we're going to be. I'm going to go right the way back to what you just said about building an aeroplane and about how you are very good at building structure from chaos because you've done that at a very different scale with being able to create structure out of an incredibly chaotic situation or situations that I would love to now introduce our listeners to with your incredible book, Patchwork Junkie. <laughs> well, I, I, what a segue, uh, what a segue from customer experience. No, no, I tell you, and let's hope we don't let anybody down. I don't think we will, but I don't think so. Here's, here's two things I want to tell you. Cause I, I want to, I want to uh, parlay a little bit off of, you know, the, the customer service and how important it is. This is, so the first startup company we took literally talking about chaos, right? We, we stepped right in the middle of a 19-person company getting $18 million, hiring all their friends and having this technology that was all over the world that nobody knew what to do with and it never worked, right? And I stepped in and I decided that, hey, we've got another product that works. Let me run with it. And I got no resources, right? I didn't have any marketing team. I didn't have any sales guys. And I proved to that company in about three months that we had a viable product. 
and they gave it all to me. And they said, right. we're doing the student body lift. And I literally built a team that took that company in 2009, which I don't know if you remember, was the softest economy was, since the great. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Except so, for. Yeah, yeah, except from right now. I think where you are, like we call it GFC, the GFC here. I've, I heard an American two days ago refer to it as the, I think it was the the, the deep recession or something like that. It was uh, the, the the giant recession instead of the, the great recession from back in the 20s. Um, you've got a different term for it that we wouldn't know outside of the U.S. Well, it's there. They call it a recession, but it was a depression in oh. the 30s because we had no mechanisms and nothing. Right, like that that's right. Before. Sorry. So yeah, this was the Great Recession. That's how right. it was referred to instead of the Great Depression. Yeah, thank but, you. But we took that company from 1.5 million, very small company, to 14.1 in 12 months. Wow. The team that I built, and so you talk about chaos. You're talking about a company that a wasn't even in that market. B, didn't have the resources to manage all this, and C, had lots of products that didn't work. And we turned all of that around, put a channel together, built a sales team, um, put marketing around it, and literally put these moving objects out on the road here in America and was very proud of that. And I took it, we did the same thing for the second one, went from 1 million to 20 million, and all of that was fantastic. And now we'll get to your question and, and this part of the story, when people ask me, like, how do you manage that kind of chaos? Because yeah. literally in a different time zone, you know, three days out of the week and, you know, being on an airplane and, you know, having 15 people that report to you that can't make a decision without you. And it's tough, but I thrived off of it. And I, I think my training ground really was prison, right? It really was the chaos that I had in prison. So what the book is about... Um, you know, I, I, I will start here. I come from the middle of the states. I come from what maybe you've heard of as flyover states. I'm not from New York. I'm not from California. I'm from Missouri. And I'm right. from a really small farming community. And what that means is small town values. Everybody knows your name. Um, it's, a, it's a different world than big cities. Very and controlled environment. It, it is very controlled. That's right. It's, it's, uh, it's sheltered. Um, but good people. Good people. I love it. I'm glad I'm from there. It helped me get through a lot of stuff. But to kind of fast track this story, I end up, I, you know, I'm the I'm the high school athlete. I'm a four year letterman. Does that mean anything to you? What letter jacket? It does are? to me. Um, I've, anybody who's been exposed to kind of teen American movies would know. I think yeah. so. It's when you get the the letter on your colored um, college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you earn a letter. You earn yeah, a letter in a jacket, and I did that. that you know, depend on which sport you learn, you you earn it in, or anything like that. That's right. And I was yeah. in three sports, and I lettered four years, and so I was a really popular kid. Um, but I come from a broken home; nobody really saw that, and I had self worth issues that I didn't recognize. My senior year, I thought I was going to play college football, and I ended up getting mono. And things didn't work out the way they should. So from high school to about 24, I dropped out of college. I joined the service. I got kicked out of the service. I went through this entire, I built a pattern of just quitting everything. And it really came from um, thinking that I was immortal. I was young. There was no grave that I could dig that I couldn't get myself out of. And so I I discovered at 24 that I had this, this, um, 
inclination to grow businesses. And so I was a young entrepreneur. I had eight employees and I thought in, you know, at 24, I thought I was on top of the world and I end up getting wildly addicted to methamphetamine, which through the, a conversation that you and I had, you guys call that P. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, the scourge. That's a bit of a scourge here in New Zealand. Pete. Well, it, and back in the mid '90s, it still is here. But back in the mid '90s, it was all the rage, and I didn't see it coming. Everything came easy to me. I didn't understand weakness. I didn't understand people that weren't disciplined. I certainly didn't understand addiction. And so instead of this, I met a girl with a bottomless bag. Um, she ends up cutting me off four or five months into my addiction. And instead of quitting, I teach myself this very complex scientific process of manufacturing it myself. Wow. Um, this is very dangerous, right? There was some mm. fire involved and all of this is in the book. But um, long story short, I end up thinking the only way I'm ever going to get out the only way I'm ever going to escape this, this is my exit strategy. I'm going to have to have an overdose or commit suicide. I mean, it got really, really bad. So I started using needle. I started shooting up seven to eight times a day. And look, if this is too heavy for your listeners, you let me know because it, it gets pretty graphic, right? No, let's, let's dive on through. But, but the plan, the plan is just to die. I'm, I've decided that, you know, my parents can never see me like this again. The world's better off without me. You know, all of those things that people imagine or fantasize about when they're suicidal. I also, in the process of trying to have an overdose, in the process of sustaining my own addiction, accidentally become the biggest meth cook in Kansas City. And I'm wanted by every state and every federal um, authority you can imagine. Instead of dying, the universe had another plan for me. I get arrested and I'm facing 30 years with no parole. Now, there's a lot more to that, right? And I, I know that wasn't a short story, but I'm going to fast track. We're going to parachute right in the middle. Don't, of the don't worry about detail, by the way. You know, the, often the devil's in the detail. So, yeah, yeah, we've got time. Well, we'll parachute right in the middle of a single cell. I ended up, because I wasn't, um, I wasn't playing well with the other inmates, and I ended up in a cell by myself um, 23 hours a day every day for almost a year of my life. And it was, um, it was the worst. Look, I, let me, let me set the stage here. I'm facing 30 years with no parole, which I, if I get it, I'm doing every day of those 30 years. My own mother, let alone any of my friends won't come to see me because I burned all those bridges. I'm coming down off copious amounts of methamphetamine. And I'm trying to figure out how this happened because my world was a blur. Yeah. And I end up deciding that instead of, you know, sitting here and worrying about all the things that happened, because I was worried, I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to figure out the meaning of life. And I literally go into this incredible transformational spiritual moment um, that lasted, you know, a year where I just do mano a mano with God every single day and just try to boil the ocean right? Just try to figure out what's truth and what's fluff. Like, forget about Jesus, forget about Muhammad, forget about Hare Krishna, forget about Buddha. Like, let's just start with what I really believe. And I believe three things. This is what I decided my spiritual uh, foundation was going to be built on. Mm. Yeah. I believe there was a creator of the universe, right? And I believe that. Two, I believe that if I ask that creator with pureness of heart, 
and I listen, if I ask for truth, that he would, he, she, it would send it to me. And three, if any one of those two were wrong, well, then we're all screwed anyway. So what's it matter? Right. That was my spiritual foundation. And it was incredible. Now, there's a lot more to the story, but uh, if you mm-hmm. want to ask, feel free. We can come back to that later. But I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just enthralled. Don't, okay. Please don't take my, like, I'm really bad at interrupting people. It's one of my failings. You know, it's one of the good things about the podcast, but I'm absolutely literally just glued to my screen listening to you. Okay. Okay. All right. That's good to hear. So about a month before I get sentenced, this whole process takes 18 months, right? A year in the cell and then, you know, six months outside the cell with other inmates. And I, um, she comes to me, my lawyer, and she says, Hey, look, uh, we just deposed the, uh, the officer that pulled you over. He had no business pulling you over. Every piece of evidence that they got is insubmissible. And I was like, wow, uh, we, you saying I can walk. She's like, yes. And I said, well, what if we lose? We have to go to trial. What if we lose? She said, you get to 30 and you're going to go to the worst prison in Missouri. And I said, well, listen, I don't feel good about this because I am, I, I did break the law, you know, between you and me, that evidence is mine. And what is the guy offering? She said, nine years on a nine year sentence, your first time down, you're going to do a third of that Missouri for anything below an A felony. So I just did 18 months getting sentenced. I figured I'd go off to prison and do another 18 months and I'd walk out happier than I've ever been in my life, all zinned out, ready to reset the world, right? At least my corner of it. I've got a six-year-old son when I get arrested. By the time I'm ready to get out, he's nine. And I'm telling him, don't listen to your mother. I'm going to be your dad. This is never going to happen again. Get a football, American football. And <laughs> I'm yeah, going to teach yeah. you ways of, you know, how to be a man. I love you. Da, 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 da. About a month before I'm eligible for parole, the federal government comes in and they indict me and I'm facing life. And when I tell people they indicted me for the same crime, everybody says that's not legal. And I say it is legal because what they do is they use all the same evidence, but they call it something different. Instead of trafficking in the first degree, they call it conspiracy. Mm. So I'm literally facing life. I go so they're the- using the same evidence, but they're, they're looking for a completely different outcome or, or putting a different outcome to it. Well, not a different outcome, but a different journey to the same evidence. That's to get, right. To get the outcome they have one piece of evidence that the state did not have, and that is my guilty plea. So I walk in guilty. I'm, I'm screwed. And I spend the next two years of my life fighting the system, thinking I'm going to do life, you know, going through. And this is one of the most violent holding facilities because they have to, it's outside of Leavenworth. I think even, you know. You mentioned that on our first call. Yeah. And I, I knew the name straight away. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't the Leavenworth. It's just in the same area. But they have to house every criminal from the most heinous murderers to, you know, anything you can imagine to me. Right. And I don't know where I fall into that pecking order at that time, but, you know, whatever. So it's violent. People are getting beat up. I get jumped. All of that's in the book. It's one of the most, uh, uh, I think it's probably one of the most critical soul searches coming off the heels of the enlightenment the you know the the 
euphoric spirituality that I had in that single cell. And then now with I that, think, and then with that um, hope shown to you with the with the issues around the evidence when you were finding that spirituality as well to only have it then once again, you know, challenged in a, a very Jobian way almost. Well, you also, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, but you, you've also been shown, right? You build this philosophy that God's benevolence, right? We can spend the rest of our lives trying to define that, but God's benevolence is that I can manifest whatever I want and he is good and wants to give me all great things and the rockiness is over. And then the rug gets pulled right out from underneath you and you're like, well, F you, God, what, what part of the game is this? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that isn't that isn't what we agreed. <laughs> yeah, this is not what I signed up for. Hey, it's even in the book. The, the beautiful thing about this book is I didn't pull any punches. It's very raw, and it's in some spots extremely comical. You know, where I just had this tumultuous relationship with God, and I mean, there's some times where I was worried that some of the religious zealots uh, on my end were going to burn my book and ban me and stuff because of the uh, just you know the 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 lateral relationship that I, I showed with God. But anyway, I end up by the grace of God getting a seven year sentence, but that wasn't my mindset. And I go off and I finish my time in Miami and I do a total of seven years behind bars. I walk out at the age of 35. And the reason I told you that I went through this series of quitting is because when I walked out at 35, my, my job history with the exception of one job was six months with everybody else, right? I didn't have these this resume where I'd spent five years with somebody learning something, no college degree, no network, scared to death, and I'd never even sent an email in 2005. From 97 to 2005, technology boomed, right? The internet was really birthed in that time. And I go from this scared convict, I mean, scared to death, I'll come back to another story the, day, the first day I walked out, but I went from a scared convict who didn't know his place in the world, who had no clue, had no plan. Very institutionalized. Very institutionalized. Mm. Making $10 an hour at a call center to a decade later, I was that vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. And all of the success that we talked about earlier happened while I was learning how to do it. Like I became this guy. Now you asked me earlier, what was the most important um, element to the success side of it all? And it, it's easy and it may sound like a cop-out, but it was it literally hunger. Like I didn't have a skill set. I didn't have training. I didn't have experience. I didn't have a resume. I didn't have pedigree. I didn't have any of that stuff. The two things I had was incredible hunger right? Like there was no stopping me. I just got gypped out of 10 years of my life. I know I did seven, but two or three, I was on drugs. I just got gypped out of some time in my life. And at the age of 35, I was supposed to be here and I'm here and I got to get back there and that's hunger. And then I also had this bulletproof belief and I don't know where it comes from, but I've always had it that anything I set my mind to, I'm going to do. And I, my mind was set on being successful. No plan, no way of getting there, no path because nothing was visible. Just the belief that I was going to keep my head on a swivel and literally any opportunity, I'm jumping in there, right? And yeah. the great thing about my situation, 
people are like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. But here's the thing. When you're in the situation I am right now, let's say I want to do the same thing, right? I want to monumentally go to the same level. I'm going to have, or you're, you know, uh, the same increase. I'm going to have to find whatever it is. I'm going to have to find that edge. I'm going to have to find that grit. I'm going to have to find the eye of the tiger at like Rocky three. Um, because now I've got hundreds of opportunities. I've got pedigree. I do have all of these things back then there was one, maybe two opportunities and they were really easy to see. And it's not very hard to make a decision, right? Because that's my one chance. There are no others. I either do that or I sit on the couch and work at McDonald's. And so it was really easy. Having well, we humility. Can be, we, can be, um, we, can, we can be, we can get far too much choice. I think even in customer experience, we, we advise people not to give too much choice. But in our lives, if, if it's all too comfortable, if the status quo and the options and who really knows where it's going, it's far, far easier just to sit in the status quo instead of search out those opportunities or grab those, those big ones as they, they, they pass in front of you. Well, it's even hard to see them, right? I mean, yeah. because every opportunity that I ever got, you know, was work. Right. And it's cleverly disguised as hard work at <laughs> risk. So yeah. we, when we get comfortable, we have a hard time seeing it. Like I was always scared. I, I'm going to tell you, if, if you wanted me to sum up my career in like a one sentence, I would say I literally white knuckled 10 years, 10 years. Oh, by the way, I forget to tell people this because my life was so eventful. <laughs> I also had stage four cancer during, in the middle of that 10 oh years. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, yeah. I forget to tell people all these crazy, oh, by the way, I almost forgot, but I had stage four cancer and I attribute it to the fear that I had to face the, you know, nonstop work, the stress, the building, you know, order out of chaos and literally hiding this past from everybody. I hid it from everybody. Mm. I, the people that I work, the people that work for me, our friends, uh, you know, for 10 years, 12 years, nobody knew anything about my past. And that's very difficult to do and very scary. Mm. Very scary. I, I couldn't even. I bet it is. I bet oh. it is. Because you're always worried that someone's going to find out if your secret if you're trying to hold that secret back. You, your reality is literally that you are living in a house of cards. And, you know, just the smallest breeze is going to knock it over. That's your reality. And I'm thinking like Don Draper in um, Admin, where, you know, his whole world was a, was a reality, but his past was that thing that was just always potentially tapping on the door. That next knock on the door could be the, the one person that knew the secret. And I, I had a, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. You're not interrupting me at all. So, so to, to kind of punctuate what you were saying about it always being this looming shadow over you, I I got my first, so I got a bunch of promotions, right? And the, I just learned how to leapfrog every single one of them. But the, my big one was when I became, and this was 2008, and I was assigned to um, Director of North American Sales for that startup company. Mm -hmm. And that's three years after I got out, right? You have to think about that. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm director of North American sales. And then, and like 
for 10 minutes, I'm elated. I'm like, oh my God, I'm validated. I can't wait to tell my wife, you know, this is amazing. I'm going to make more money. This I'm building the resume. Like the past just instantly seemed further behind me. And then within about 10 minutes, I started to realize that part of my territory was Canada and you can't get into Canada with a felony. And I was on probation and I was on parole. And so this big part of my territory that I'm supposed to be managing, I can't go to. And instantly I'm scared that my CEO is going to find out and I'm unemployable again. And that's what happened with almost every single job that I went after, every single milestone that I achieved. If there was always that thing that yeah. kept right there on my shoulder. Now it gave me an edge. Like I've always been the kind of guy that you're never going to out practice on the field. You know, maybe not the most talented, probably not the smartest guy in the room, but you know what? You're not going to outwork me. You're not going to outperform me just because I'm built like that. But this was gasoline on that competitiveness, right? Not only were you never going to outwork me, I had it in my head that any day now they're going to knock on my door and say, why didn't you tell us about this? And I better have 15 things to point at to say, well, who cares? Look what I've done. So I worked 16 hour days. I raised my hand all the time, like volunteered for everything. And that's how I created this, um, this career. Well, it's, it's just so inspiring. I mean, this year I think everybody is going through challenges that they never thought they were going to go through. There's a lot of people who had an incredibly comfortable status quo that they could see ahead. And this year, for me, my, my journey is nothing, um, nothing like yours. I'm, I'm so – such admiration for, for, for where, you've, where you've been through and where you've come to. Um, but but certainly I've found in my life that I've needed the bad times in retrospect to get the resilience that I've needed to, to get through. Um, and that's what I've seen the biggest, where I've seen a lot of growth in people around me. It's this year, everybody seems to be, I guess you were constantly in a solution setting mode. You had this constant problem about being found out. So you were constantly exercising your problem solving skills. That's a really um, eloquent way of putting survival, mm. right? I was yeah. in survival and because of survival, you know, Darwin had a few things right. I, um, you know, I, I evolved into a really good problem solver. I, I, the first time I, I moved out from Tampa, uh, this is clear across the country, by the way, I was in Florida and I moved to San Francisco and in order for me to do that, there was a lot of hoops I had to jump through, but the hiring manager, the VP of the company who uh, was hiring me was dragging his feet. And I knew that I had to continually entice him, continually put myself in front of his schedule and somehow juggle, again, a parole officer and a probation officer that didn't want me to leave. And so I started to leverage my wife. She's the sweetest person in the world, but I would leverage my wife to, as a, as I, I can't think of a better word, but as a sales prop, as collateral, right? Because right. if I could get them out of the business environment 
to sit down with me and my lovely wife and have drinks, then I got the job, right? Because A, I was confident that I was a good person because I was around her. And B, she's so sweet. I was confident they would want good things to happen to me because of her. So I'm literally using everything I can possibly get my hands on. And my wife happened to be one of those. It sounds like I was pimping her out, but that's not what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) You see the world complexly. When, When you have big problems to fix, the level of complexity that you see the world in increases and expands. Well, and it was, it was, you're right. You're right. And, and look, I've never had this conversation either, but looking back on it now, it's just starting to come to me, right? We, we would, you know, I'd have to get an airplane. I'd have to get a, a you know, a, a flight over there. And that was hard to do when you're on probation and parole. And while we were flying, I'm literally role-playing. If he says this, you say that. And if he does this, we've got to do that. And I would have this complex world of all these moving parts. And I would literally have levers that I'm pulling and looking at how I mitigate all these what ifs. And when I look back on it now, like that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Just to get a job. Right. But I mean, it panned out. Uh, But the one thing it did teach me really, really well is no is never really a no. Like it can be, but you know, you start to learn the difference between no and I haven't heard a compelling enough reason. And there's a huge difference between that. And I started to really dive into the compelling reasons to do things. And I started to realize, you know, what gets people to move? What makes people happy? Why do they buy? You know, it's kind of a cop out when people say, oh, everybody buys from who they like. It's not always true. Like there's still greed. There's still fear of loss. There's still all these things that if you are in the environment I was and in the mindset, you start to understand those things on steroids, you know, and it really turned out a pretty decent sales guy. It did. To, to, to turn that structure from the cat, to turn, to create structure from that chaos, you needed to really understand. You needed to have huge human insights into the way that you were operating. So it became, you become a much better observer and uh, a user of the data that you were receiving from the external world. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's, um, you know, I think, I think maybe some people could misconstrue what's being said is I learned how to manipulate the situation and that's not it at all. I, no, I to, no, no, I, I, I hope people aren't getting that. And, and yeah, I hope so too. To that out because I think it's much more, it, for me, it's, I mean, it's a much more extreme example of um, people who have failed companies tend to have a few more insights into how to run a successful company because they're looking at all of their problems. They're trying to solve things. They may be failing under that complexity in the first experience, but it's like a muscle, that resilience as well, the the level of complexity. It's a muscle that if we keep working at it, you know, that adage if I personally believe that the day I stop learning is the day that I can, I should give up. You know, I want to learn something new every day. But it is. It's the the painful times, the painful years are the years that create the, the biggest change. Phil, our producer, I'm going to quote him here. I was having a rather dark day earlier in the year. It's been a tough year. And, you know, it's just 
just exhausted. And I like that Zen Buddhist quote, um, seven times down, eight times up. And I think it was Phil. And if it's not Phil, Phil can take the, the plaudits anyway. It was like, and it's the lessons you learn on that pickup. When you pick yourself up, it's those lessons that you learn from. You get from that bottom to where you are. Um, and I think, you know, your story, which I can't wait to read, and leads me on to a suggestion that um, let's get you back on the show because I know that we were talking about this in the green room before. Phil may have even started recording this, but I love reading these emotionally rich experiences because it gives me a small echo. You know, there is we, we our brains can't tell the difference between dreaming and being awake. So thinking about something gives us a flavor of what we're thinking about. And so your your rich tapestry of a journey um is is certainly something that I believe that I can I can learn a lot from and I hope that my readers so would you come back on the show once I've had a had a had a read through your pages. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um like I was telling you earlier, when we potentially were in the green room or potentially being recorded. Yeah, yeah sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 I love it. I love it. I love I love all that stuff, organic and candid and everything else. But um, the conversation that we would have about the book would be completely different. Like I'm, I'm a little bit subdued, subdued about how I talk about the book. But here's something that I would tell anybody that's listening. The experience that the readers are having there's there's this thing about the book. You know, I should preface everything I'm about to say with this. I I had no business writing a book. What does a guy like me know about writing a book? And I've missed out on an experience, a spiritual communing with the divine experience that I could have been having my entire life. Turns out, I you know, when I'm creating, when I get into the flow state of writing, I feel so strong and so connected. Therefore, when I brag about this book, I am literally bragging about that experience and not my ability. And so what the readers are getting from this is it's different with everybody. There's something behind the words that is just, I can have 50 conversations and I promise you I've had 500, right? But I can have 50 conversations and it sounds like we're talking about a different book. And it's because people are going to get what they want. Some people are going to get that their father was an alcoholic. Some people are going to understand that, you know, falling deep down and, and getting into rock bottom is something that usually paralyzes. You know, they're, they're just going to get something different every single time. So I love, I not only would love to come back, I mean, I, I I forbid you to not let me come back. I would not want to uh, to break your uh, your rule there. So yeah, let's get you back on the show in the next week because I've now got the first fifty pages and I'm just so eager to 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 get through it. It's Thanksgiving where you are tomorrow, bit of a time stamp there. What are you, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Now I spent a bunch of time with most of the people you don't really care about in your family. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're going to have, you know, the extended family, brother, mom, um, you know, maybe not my brother, but yeah, the, the kids, the nephews, nieces, everybody. Um, my wife is half Colombian. Her mother's from Colombia. And ironically, so is my brother-in-law, my, my wife's brother. And so we have this, 
non-traditional. There will be turkey and ham, but there's also empanadas and oh, you know pizza. all this traditional um, Colombian food, which is rich and good. Mm. So we'll all just gain a bunch of weight. That's the oh, plan. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's what these holidays are, are, are now made for, aren't they? So yeah, um, and I'm so glad that you get to spend some time with uh, spending thankful periods with loved ones and i hope you have a wonderful um period uh, thanksgiving um day and thank you so much again for this first episode and yeah let's uh let's get that second one in very soon thank you so Absolutely. much oh by the way before i let you go um if and i'm sure that there's already people who have listened to this this first part and would love to get in contact with you and learn more about the book what's the best way that they can do that yeah sure you know I, i'm i'm not very good at promoting the book when we haven't even mentioned the name of it i don't think so so the book's called patchwork junkie and yeah they can I, I hoped i said it at the beginning but i could well you have may have. yeah you may have, but yeah. i don't yeah. think i'm that good yeah uh, you but, certainly haven't no that's right i know i gotta get better at that uh <laughs> but anyway patchwork junkie they can find it um I, do you you guys don't have barnes and noble Pro probably the easiest is amazon books um, they can find it on Amazon books. They can get it, uh, the e-version or they can get the physical copy. Me, myself, I've got a website that's kyledeanhouston.com or all my handles on Facebook, Instagram, um, uh, are Kyle Dean Houston and then LinkedIn it's Kyle Houston. And I will tell anybody that's listening. I love to get DMS. I, I love to answer questions about issues that people are having that they don't normally share with people. So any, just don't be afraid to reach out to me. I, I don't have a hidden agenda other than it really is my mission for the next phase of my life to bring hope into the world and offer people a different perspective on what they're are capable of doing. Well, I can't wait to explore that even further in the next week. And I, I want to mention one other thing. We're we're putting together. I, I would love it if if you know people reached out and followed me on Facebook, but we're putting together a webinar um, here. I think we're going to do it in the middle of December. It'll be announced probably next week. But we're putting together a webinar, and it's going to talk about the title of it is how to get epic shit done always. And we're going to talk about how to leverage these negative emotions that exist inside you living in possibility, facing fear, realizing that fear is the real breadcrumb to success. And I, it's a worthwhile experience for anybody that wants to jump on free webinar. So I just wanted to, throw I would love out. to, I would, I mean, this year is more one of the most challenging years that many of the listeners will have faced. Um, certainly I think we're, we're all in that boat. And some of us have had far more challenging years in the past. And I think there's some amazing lessons that can be learned from, you know, those, 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 uh, those experiences that, that you've had and other people. So, yeah, please please send me details. By the time this goes out, it will probably already be there, but we'll put it in the show notes as well so that we've got you some information it. about it. You got it, man. Thank Thanks you for the time. Man. Oh, it's, it could have gone on for ages as well, but I'm excited to be reading this the, the first pages, so we will talk again very soon. Thank you once again, Carl. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening today. I hope you got some really solid value out of the conversation. If you did get some value, please consider subscribing using any of the links below. We are on all major podcast platforms. 
And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or via our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you next time.